Hello and welcome to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Chaltis. I am Dr. Jim Chaltis. Today I wanted to talk about autoimmune disease. I'm going to revisit this topic um, over and over again, most likely because it is a massive topic. Um, I have already done one episode uh, kind of with a basic introduction, so if you have an interest in autoimmunity, you can go back and search for that. It is um, down the list, but it is there for you. Um, I will cover a few basic concepts today based on that last um, episode, but the focus of today is to start to, to dissect what promotes autoimmune disease, why does it even start in the first place, right? Um, and what drives it? Like, what are some of those really basic physiological mechanisms that drives the, the pathophysiology of autoimmune disease, right? If you have two people and they both have the same autoimmune condition, why is one person falling apart and the other one maybe not falling apart? Right. Um, that question is massive, but it has to start with some basic concepts. These things are relatively cheap and easy to test for and to address, you know, and supplement for, um, you know, that can go hand in hand with much more aggressive interventions. For example, you know, re-establishing a, a brand new dietary protocol can be uh, life-changing for some people, but it's not a small ordeal. You're right, it's it's a it's a big deal to change your life. Sometimes um, the reality is with autoimmunity, when it's really expressing, you kind of have to change your life because it's just not working for you. Right, the autoimmune system is doing that um, in response to, you know, uh, a diet and or lifestyle that just isn't working. So. Um, Without further ado, I want to kind of just start with a very short little um, recap on some on some basic concepts of what the immune system is doing in an autoimmune situation. So um, I'd like for you to kind of imagine for a moment um, a, a playground teeter-totter, right? You know, as one kid goes down, the other kid goes up and back and forth and it kind of swings in the middle and there's a little fulcrum there in the middle that kind of controls that swing, right? So in a, in a laughably basic understanding of the immune system, we can think of it as this teeter-totter. Okay, so on one side of the teeter-totter, you have what are called T-helper-1 cells, Th1, we call them, Th1 cells for short. These are natural killer cells, cytotoxic T cells. Um, these are more involved with that sort of initial immune response. So if we take, for example, a non-autoimmune situation, um, let's just say somebody contracts a, a virus, a little cold or something, or they get a little poke with a dirty wire and they get a little infection in their finger, um, the immune system has to get started. And so the, the way it gets started for the most part is these T helper one cells kind of start to activate and, you know, think of them as sort of the, you know, the, the security guard at the mall, if you will. And, and the security guard, um, you know, they don't have ultimate authority over that, over that situation, but they do have walkie-talkies and they do have handcuffs. Um, and so they can kind of start that process. They can grab that, that offender and, and then kind of hand them off, right, to... to um, to the, the better powers out there, but they're, they're an essential piece. So the T helper one cells kind of, they, they recognize something that doesn't look right, that doesn't belong. They take a little piece of it. They share that piece with the T helper two cells. 
the, the B cells, and that's where our antibodies come from. Antibodies will look at that little fragment that, that the T helper 1 cells gathered for them and make a mirror image of it as an antibody, and so then they can release those antibodies in large, large numbers and target that offender very specifically, um, and it, it's quite a fantastic process. Our immune systems are, are amazingly accurate. It's, um, it's astonishing, actually, um, if you really start to learn about immunology, just how near-perfect that response can be. Um, course there are some things that can go wrong and, the, and today's topic is really about why do they go wrong so um, so that's what happens so the first thing is the T helper 1 cells swing up and the T helper 2 the B cells temporarily for the first several days perhaps actually kind of get suppressed and there's only so much energy to go around think of it like that and then after several days they switch so T helper 1s go down and then the T helper 2 cells are really active uh, creating all those antibodies and and that's when the infection starts to become much better managed. And then it should swing back to normal, right? And everybody's healthy now, you've recovered, and the immune system did its job. Okay, that whole orchestration has to do with the activity of the T helper three cells. We call them regulatory cells, or if we want to be fancy, we call them Tregs for short. Re the regulatory T cells, they orchestrate the the activation of the different immune responses, the different cells, and the suppression of them when it's an appropriate time to do so. We don't want to keep going with all this immune activity after an infection is gone, after the threat is over, right? That would be a waste of energy. That would be uh, needless exposure to inflammation because the immune response is inherently inflammatory. So we want that to stop. and. You know, the, the regulatory T cells uh, activate other, you know, types of uh, mechanisms in the immune response that just calms everything back down. So the, the, the Tregs aren't, they're not immune boosters or they're not immune suppressors. They're immune modulators. They're like the um, conductor of an orchestra, right? That, that might be a really good way of thinking about it. They, they control what everybody involved does. Now, autoimmunity right, usually starts with a problem with those regulatory cells, right? Something happens. Usually multiple somethings happen in a person's life. And then click. Now some genes click on. There's a, there's a genetic link to a lot of this stuff. You'll see autoimmunities run in families, for example. So um, click. Now there's genes that are expressed that are you know, unhealthy for us, right? Think of it too, like a lot of people are coded for cancer and they may or may not click on for that, that gene, but, but oftentimes they do. And so now in their late 40s, breast cancer or something like that, right? Um, so it's similar to what happens in autoimmunity. There are, there's, there's some genetic links, some, some genes that are sort of lurking, they're waiting, and one day they become activated. And now the regulatory function starts to decline. So you get, you get um, an illness and now you have a, a much more aggressive immune response than, than you should and you start attacking other stuff or, um, or you just don't stop attacking things even after it's over or 
or in some cases you don't launch the appropriate immune responses and you end up getting taken down by a flu uh, much worse than you normally would or you just get sick all the time so autoimmunity is sort of the wild wild west of immune responses it, there's no one perfect way that we can assume it's going to happen for all individuals what we can appreciate is that all autoimmune people tend to have problems with their regulatory t-cell function their their t-regs their TH3, T helper 3 cells, right? All the same concept. So they have a rusty fulcrum. We have to think of it like that. Their teeter-totter is old and busted and rusty, and it doesn't swing smoothly or efficiently, right? It, it's, it locks in one position. One poor kid is stuck up in the air where the other kid's stuck on the ground, right? So a person can be a T helper 1 dominant, or they can be T helper 2 dominant. Either way, it's an inappropriate immune response and can lead to autoimmune expression and autoimmune disease eventually. So um, focus should always be made on the regulatory concept. Um, this is where some of the genetic traits are kind of known to exist. And that is the topic of today. That, this is my, my, um, my background concepts, <laughs> so you understand um, why I would say I want you to take this supplement and that supplement, right? It's um, it, it's for real scientific purposes. You know, there's um, there's real mechanisms at play here. So, without further ado, um, the first genetic concept has to do with vitamin D. So. On our cells and certainly on the regulatory cells um, we have little receptors that recognize vitamin D and um, and they help activate you know the regulatory t-cell function um, on a little aside it is no secret to medicine or science that uh, vitamin D deficiency and I'm not even talking about autoimmunity here, but vitamin D deficiency, aside from it being rampant in our society, like a major epidemic, um, but that was, I believe, the second most, um, what, important factor in people that died of COVID. People that were in the ICUs from COVID. Um, something upwards of 80 to 90%, I, um, I don't know the exact number, uh, were deficient in vitamin D. And so what did that do? They couldn't regulate their immune response. They were, they had rusty fulcrums. They couldn't launch the appropriate immune response. When necessary, we just got this weird virus. Our body doesn't understand it. We need to get those Tregs active fast. And the people that could not do that suffered and were hospitalized and oftentimes died. It's a very cheap intervention. And yes, you can get it from the sun, but no, we don't tend to do that very well because we don't hang out naked, um, you know, 20 minutes a day and really get sun on our bodies. Right? This is not our culture. <laughs> okay, um, maybe there's some nude beaches around. Go to them if you'd like, but um, but it's easy to to take a little extra vitamin D and just make sure your blood levels are at a healthy healthy level. So the concept of this vitamin D deficiency. Um, sorry, this vitamin D genetic polymorphism, it's called, you know, which is like a mutation to the genetic code, uh, is that you don't have receptors for vitamin D that work as effectively. So in those cases, you saturate them with more vitamin D. You know, this, this, this has to do with a lot of different concepts. You do not want to overdose. You want to 
pre-test and you want to post-test and make sure that vitamin D levels do not climb, ideally above 100 in the blood. Um, if it goes above 100, there can be some concerns with things like calcium in the blood and you know you could have issues with, with stone formation in the kidneys and perhaps some muscle um, cramping or, or twitching or you know uncomfortable things like that. In really bad cases, I've never ever seen them. Um, you can have heart arrhythmias because calcium is essential for all kinds of muscle function and, and nerve function and very important stuff. So you know you want to be on point when you're prescribing this kind of thing as a doctor. Um, if you are a lay person out there just swallowing vitamin D, well, just be careful with that and, and, and seek out somebody who can help you test your blood for that. Um, ideally, in a functional medical model, um, you know, the, the typical lab range from, let's say, LabCorp is 30 to 100. So ideally, we want somebody in the 70, 80, even 90 range if there's autoimmunity. For the, for the average population, there's some good literature that shows that, you know, anybody that's north of 50 is, is doing themselves a great service. There's zero danger of that. Um, and there's zero danger of anything below 100, really. Um, certain labs will have a lower reference range. That does not mean that it's safer to be lower. It just means that in that system, that's what they've averaged out. And so that's what they've decided. They made their little bell curve and they've decided that's normal, quote unquote. That doesn't have to do with normal physiology. You know, that's the difference between a lab range, mainstream, and a functional range. Functional range is really striving for those, those optimal physiological levels. So in autoimmunity, because there's a likely genetic deficiency there of these receptors, you want to provide more vitamin D. If I don't test somebody, if somebody just wants to take vitamin D, they can easily take 5,000 IUs per day of vitamin D and never ever have a concern of overdose ever. Um, a lot of times you'll see them for 1,000 or something like that. The doctor will recommend one or 2,000. You can take 5,000. It's very, very safe to do. Um, you can take 10,000, depending on how well you're absorbing it. But don't take those types of doses unless you have somebody who can test you and make sure you're not creeping up. 10,000 IUs per day, I consider sort of a building dose for most people. If you come to me and I see you with a, a vitamin D level of 13, which is super common, saw one this morning, well, I'm putting you on 10,000 IUs per day and I'm going to retest you in like six to eight weeks because I want to see that 13 turn into a, you know, a 73 in that time. And, and if it does so, then great, we can reduce the dose and then test again and see how you're doing with, let's say, five to 6,000 or 8,000 or something like that. And then we can adjust over time. Um, so that's step number one. We have to make sure the vitamin D levels are, are primed, are optimal, not just for a basic functional range of 50 or so in the blood, but for that kind of um, really unpublished, it's not in any lab range concept, it's just something that we functional medical doctors kind of know and understand high end of the reference range. Stimulate those weak receptors because they, they desperately need that, right? We need you to fight an infection if you get one, and we need you to not attack your own tissues, right? That's huge because some tissues are repairable or replaceable, other tissues are not, right? Like cardiac tissue or neurological tissue. Um, autoimmune disease can be disastrous. It can be miserable and it can destroy quality of life. So that's step number one. Now, step number two is re 
regarding a compound called glutathione. I will likely do a, a episode specifically on glutathione. It's such an important concept. Um, I, one of my favorite molecules, if I can be so nerdy as to have a favorite molecule. Um, but glutathione is our primary antioxidant for our cells, in, inside of our cells. We actually make it in our own body. You don't really eat a food. There's not like a fruit that has like a bunch of glutathione that you can you can supplement with. Um, we eat precursors, we eat amino acids, and our body starts to create glutathione. It's a sulfur-based compound. Um, and therefore, if you want to look for foods that are good for that, think of those kind of like cruciferous type vegetables, you know, the broccolis and the cabbages and, you know, all that onions and garlics. Those are all going to be, they have that kind of that funk to them sometimes. That's because they contain sulfur. And you end up making glutathione out of these sulfur-based amino acids. Uh, so eat your veggies, eat, eat all the colors, and you're, you're, you're doing well for that piece. Now, um, interestingly, glutathione is so important to us that um, we can't make enough in a day just for the basic stresses of breathing. And that's an odd thing to say. Everybody knows breathing equals life. We have to breathe. We have to have oxygen or we die very quickly. Um, having said that, oxygen, I'm going to do a little chemistry here, sorry. Oxygen O2, right? Two oxygens bound together. And in our cells, we have these little organelles called mitochondria. And mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. So it takes glucose and, you know, from our, our food, our blood sugar, right? It takes glucose and oxygen and water, and it creates for us ATP. ATP is our primary fuel source that fuels everything. So, um, you know, that action of ripping apart an ox oxygen molecule into two, we're, bre we're breaking that bond now, right? That's a chemical reaction inside of our cells. It breaks that bond apart. That is a nasty reaction. It, we, we get a lot of energy out of that, and that's how we live. Um, however, you have now two free oxygen radicals, right? Oxygen-free radicals, sorry. Um, a free radical is some chemical that is highly reactive, has free electrons, it wants to bind to the closest thing possible and change it chemically forever, kind of. It's very destructive. So, you know, you don't want a lot of oxygen-free radicals in your, in your bloodstream or in your, in your tissues. They will destroy your tissues. So we have glutathione around to cap that, to squash that inflammatory reaction and to uh, grant us this wonderful energy release from the bond break and, and give us life and make ATP and everybody's thriving. Um, so because we can't make enough in a day, right, just to satisfy a couch potato sitting around breathing, doing nothing, uh, if you add to that somebody who's highly active, like an, like a, an athlete or somebody goes to the gym or something, you are actively creating more of those free radicals. It's an inherently inflammatory um, activity. Having said that, we have anti-inflammatory rebound effects, which is really nice. Glutathione is a big part of that. So are you recovering from your exercises or are you, are you getting injured all the time? Are you struggling the next day? Are you overtraining, even though you don't feel like you're overtraining, right? Then maybe you need glutathione support because you can't cap that inflammation. Okay, I digress. I'm getting into my glutathione talk for next time. But um, now, because you can't make enough in a day, we have enzymes 
Enzymes are just little proteins that have a certain shape and function. Um, think of them as our little machines. They, they do a certain job. So we have enzymes that recycle glutathione, right? So you take a glutathione, it's primed, it's ready to go, and then whammo, it takes an inflammatory hit, and then it becomes sort of deactivated. That's the nature of all um, antioxidants, right? Um, unlike something like vitamin C, which is an antioxidant, you know, we eat our oranges or our strawberries and whatever, and it's lovely, and the vitamin C takes that inflammatory hit for us, and then that's it for the vitamin C. We just pee it out, and I gotta keep eating oranges, right? Um, glutathione, we can't do that, so the enzymes say, oh, you took a, uh, you took a hit, I'm gonna recharge you, right? Over and over and over again. And that's where genetic concept number two comes in. Right. We have these enzymes, glutathione oxidase and glutathione reductase, that, that just are constantly doing that process for us. So quite frequently, if, if checked into, and I don't, I don't tend to have people spend money on these, you know, kind of pricey genetic tests. Uh, if they have autoimmunity, I just sort of assume they have glutathione issues, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But um, we need to start to support the enzymes that that recycle because it's those enzymes that don't work. Just like the vitamin D polymorphism, right, or the mutation, there is the glutathione reductase and oxidase, the enzyme recycling polymorphisms. The, these little machines just don't work as well. And so just sitting around, breathing, maybe exercising, doing whatever, you start to go into deficit, right? Now, the literature says, you do not get things like a breakdown of your gut barrier, which is honestly one of the major triggers of where autoimmunity kind of starts is the gut, um, the inflammation of the gut, the, the immune cross-reaction with different foods, you know, the food sensitivity reactions. So you don't get any of that. You don't get a breakdown of the gut barrier or, might I add, the lung barrier or the brain barrier or the placental barrier. Uh, we have, there's barriers in our blood vessels. I mean, we have barrier systems everywhere. So you don't get a breakdown in those, and you don't get things like food sensitivity reactions or and or chemical sensitivity reactions, um, and you don't get autoimmune reactions until glutathione status is below a certain threshold. Okay, so how does one develop autoimmunity? Well, maybe they're coded for some genetic trait, um, it's very, very common. It's autoimmunity is like the most common physiological disease concept that we have. I mean, it's way more than cardiovascular disease. It doesn't doesn't kill us as dramatically as a heart attack or a stroke. Um, but there are millions, literally millions and millions of people just in this country with autoimmunity, um, whether they know it or not. So, that's how it happens. They have this genetic mutation with vitamin D and with glutathione, and so their regulatory cells just don't work. Not well enough, okay? I don't want to be dramatic and all-inclusive and say they're not working. <laughs> they work. Of course they work. Uh, otherwise, you'd be dead very quickly. They're not working optimally, right? And that can be different for everybody. Right? How optimally is mine versus yours? I don't know. Um, sometimes it's not as easy to really test for that. If you start seeing really low vitamin D levels, well, hey, there's that. But you add that on top of a weak vitamin D receptor and you really have nothing, right? And then you, you know, have all these gut issues and these food sensitivity reactions and you can assume that things like glutathione are, are also low. 
You can test for glutathione status. Um, I don't tend to as much because again, you're gonna spend 300 something bucks on like a micronutrient panel, um, <clears throat> which are cool, but put the money towards the, the glutathione. You're gonna need it anyways. You know, it, it doesn't matter to me, honestly. It, let's just focus on the mechanisms that the literature already knows about and um, and take as much as you can afford, oftentimes. Depending on how sick you are, you take as much as you can afford. That's, that's the reality. Autoimmunity is not cheap when it comes to like tamping down these inflammatory mechanisms, right? You're taking a ton of fish oils and turmeric and resveratrols and, you know, Vitamin D is cheap as hell, <laughs> but glutathione is not necessarily cheap, but there's ways of kind of supporting it. Um, I'll get into some of that in just a moment. Um, but that's what we need to do. We need to support these recycling concepts. So if you're doing those two things, then you are doing way more than what happens in the mainstream model. Because if you have autoimmunity in the mainstream is, is um, managing it for you, they're doing one of two things they are, or, or maybe three, <laughs> they're suppressing your immune system, right? If it's serious enough. For example, if you have multiple sclerosis or some other kind of neurological autoimmunity and your brain is literally being chewed up and dying, well, yes, that warrants, you know, um, strong medication to save your life and your quality of life. Having said that, you are now immune suppressed. Right? It's not an ideal way to live if possible. So it's there for people. But let's just say you have a, you know, a thyroiditis, you have a Hashimoto's thyroid. It is not ethical to suppress immune function uh, for that type of condition. And, and so they don't. I mean, I'm not saying that they would. They, they do not do that. It would not be ethical to do that. You would be better off having your thyroid gland removed and then replace the hormones. That tends to be what happens if it gets bad enough. Let's say in Graves' disease, it's, where it's a really aggressive thyroid um, condition, they burn it out with radioactive iodine or, or something like that. And then they turn you into a hypothyroid person, then they supplement with hormones. Um, they forgot about the autoimmune part though, right? <laughs> that's how that's kind of how they work. That was my third concept, is maybe they, they chop out a piece of you, right? Um, but they can also just, you know, like I said, they can kind of support the things that's failing. So let's say you have a Hashimoto's thyroid and your, th your thyroid gland is suffering. Um, well, they'll just replace what the hormone does you know, for you. They'll give you that, that hormone so the gland doesn't have to be responsible anymore. You're swallowing the pill. The system is managed. The thyroid system is managed. Yes, you need that. You absolutely need that. I will not be a f functional medicine doctor that would say, don't listen to your MD, you don't need the hormones. I will never ever say that. Um, most likely, if you have a progressed Hashimoto's thyroid, your thyroid gland has died enough that you need the hormones. I can't help you with that piece. That is required. Uh, but what I said a second ago, they forgot about the autoimmune piece. If you're attacking the thyroid, there's a high likelihood you're attacking other tissues. If, if we run these really fancy tests, I can run a test for like 600 bucks that looks at something like 24 different autoimmune attacks head to toe. There's never just one, hardly ever. It's, it's where else? There, there's the thyroid is oftentimes associated with gut autoimmunity in multiple locations in the gut. Joint autoimmunity like rheumatoid arthritis, very common to have those two hand in hand. Um, certain types of neurological autoimmunity like cerebellum in the back of the brain. 
So where are the others? And what does the thyroid hormone replacement do for all those? Right? That's why we have to start looking at the immune response. You have to say, what are the Tregs doing? Yes, we can look at some really cool, fancy um, immunology panels. Again, they're in the three, four hundred dollar range, so you don't just do them willy nilly unless you want to, and you have the expendable income. But if you're sick, if you are an autoimmune person with a lot of um, misery, I guess would be the best way to put it. If you are really, if your quality of life is failing, yeah, you spend the four hundred bucks and you dissect that immune response because. Aside from Treg support, we can start to fine-tune other types of, of support, you know, very specifically for that particular case. And that might change five years later, so you have to keep up on it. But, um, but the, the glutathione system is fundamental for not just the autoimmunity and the vitamin D2, both of them, not just for the autoimmunity itself, but, but for other things that drive autoimmunity, like the breakdown of the gut barrier system and the lung barrier system, right? All these protective layers of our body that, that are quite literally the interface between the inside of us and the outside of us. Um, if you're in a poor air quality environment, your lung immune system is just compromised. You need a tight barrier. You don't want those little particles to infiltrate the tissues and activate the immune system. Because if it does that, it says, we're under attack, everybody. Let's attack everything else we know. Oh, yeah, that gut tissue. I didn't like the look of that guy. I'm going to start killing that gut tissue. And now you have horrible pains. You're bleeding out your rear. You're in the doctor. They're chopping out parts of your colon, right? It's not uncommon. I'm not saying I can help you avoid that 100%. Sometimes the immunity is just, the autoimmunity is just aggressive. <laughs> it's just the breaks. But I tell you what. If we start thinking like, what are T-helper-1, T-helper-2 cells doing? How can we support the T-regs? What kinds of anti-inflammatory support can we give? What kind of barrier system support can we give so that this person isn't, even though they're exposed to things like weird foods and particulates in the air, their immune systems aren't freaking out, right? This is all T-reg support. Vitamin D, glutathione gets it started. In fact, all the lipid-soluble vitamins are kind of help in that respect as well. So vitamin, um, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and K, they've all been shown to kind of help with this regulatory T-cell concept. Um, and so have things like fish oils. So really, the, the, the trio that I kind of like to recommend people with autoimmune findings, whether they have full-blown disease or whether we just found it because we looked and they're early in their expression. Um, I provide vitamin D, generally high dose, between five and 10,000 with retesting, high dose fish oils. And by fish oils, I'm not talking about the oil that comes from a fish. I'm really talking about the essential fatty acids, those omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. They should equal combined, no less than 3,000 milligrams per day. So you'd have to look on the label and do the math. They're all different. The typical ones I see, people have to take six to 10 pills a day to get to that level. Please don't do that. Buy a higher quality pill. Um, the ones I carry, you know, take four pills to get you over 3,000, like 3,200. Um, 
And that changes lab results right there a lot of times. You'll see those inflammatory markers come down with that kind of dose. That's a therapeutic dose. That's not, hey, I take a Costco pit fish oil once a day and you know, I take fish oils. No, no, that's not therapeutic. So vitamin D, fish oils, and some kind of glutathione support. You can take actual glutathione. You can actually take it. it, it it's not the cheapest, um, but not all glutathione is the same either. So you've got to be very careful. If you're just taking something like reduced glutathione, it's probably not making it past your gut. It's doing wonders for your gut, but it's not getting to all your immune cells and all your tissues. You want the acetylated version, L-acetyl, A-C-E-T-Y-L hyphen glutathione. That has been shown to make it through these systems and into the, into the system at large. So if you're, if you're supplementing with glutathione, make sure it's the acetylated version and uh, you'll get a better systemic benefit from that. Um, or you can take precursors to glutathione. That might be a little cheaper. You take something like N-acetylcysteine, NAC. It's very common. You find it at most places. Um, again, quality can vary, so you might, might want to search out somebody who knows. But um, N-acetylcysteine will be ingested and it's converted in the liver to glutathione and then distributed to the tissues. So you can always support glutathione with precursors. Um, and it, like I said before, food bases, those sulfur-rich foods, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflowers, you know, all that kind of stuff. Garlic and ginger, uh, sorry, garlic and um, onions. <laughs> and ginger, I love ginger too. That's great for anti-inflammatory. Um, garlic, ginger, and onions, man, that's good food medicine. Okay, um, <clears throat> or... You can take thing and or, right? There's all these concepts with fruglutathione. You can take herbs like cordyceps. Cordyceps is a little fungus, and it, uh, it's a huge family of funguses, actually, but um, they grow on insects. They're, they're basically like parasitic funguses that infect an insect, kill it, usually, and, uh, and this beautiful little weird fungal you know, fruiting body erupts from their, their exoskeletons. And um, those things are harvested. And that is a magic herb. It is one of the most prized herbs in ancient, you know, Chinese medical herbology. Um, they, they prize it for its benefits of just health and longevity. They Little did those ancients know 3,000 years ago or so that they were upregulating glutathione recycling mechanisms. That's what cordyceps does. It, uh, it does a lot of other things, but one of the things it does is it turns up, it supports those glutathione recycling enzymes, All right? So I have a formula that I like to use as a base support. Um, sometimes I use two, but the first one contains things like N-acetylcysteine and cordyceps and a few other of those kind of enzyme supporting and, um, you know, uh, what? precursor-based compounds for glutathione. So you're getting in that that basic, I'm, I'm supporting the enzymes and I'm giving myself everything I need to make enough glutathione. That's huge. Then you can also take glutathione and that's sort of like the one-two punch. So I kind of like to think of uh, an autoimmune condition, really any kind of chronic inflammatory condition is sort of like a structure fire. Like, yep, you're a house and you're on fire. You have an autoimmune condition and it is inflammatory in nature and we're going to call that fire. So well, we want to pour water on a fire. Of course we do, right? Put out the flames. Well, that's glutathione. So you can do that by dumping a bunch of glutathione on it. If you just dump water on a fire, you're going to put the fire down. But in autoimmunity, there's always an ember. 
it always comes back. Um, you can go into remission states for years, but it's lurking, right? So if, the, if conditions are just right, it's going to ignite. And, um, and we, we want to do everything we can to not have that happen because, again, you could lose brain tissue or all kinds of organ tissue. So glutathione is water. Think of the recycling system like the cordyceps and the NAC and all that kind of basic support as like keeping sprinklers on a little bit, just keeping things kind of tamped down all the time. And then when you get a flare, you dump a bunch of water on it, right? So that's, that's sort of the one-two punch. But if you're doing those three concepts, you are now on top of what the MDs might have done to re replace a hormone that, that's failing because of that organ or, or whatever they need to do, now you're helping the autoimmunity not continue the attack, right? Hugely important. We will continue this doc. This is enough for today. Two supplement concepts and reasons why. Very important. You just don't get this talk in the mainstream. I'm sorry to say it. You just don't get it. Um, do those things and get that ball rolling. And that will open the door, perhaps, to other things that will now work. You start to then change the diet based on usually testing or trial and error, you know, um, as far as like uh, elimination, provocation protocols. You, know, you can find some amazing things with the diet. Um, you know, if you're just eating green beans and you don't like them and your immune system hates them, then you're firing up your autoimmunity, right? So it's an important piece. We'll talk all about that uh, some other time. So you start doing, you know, Treg support and barrier system support and avoiding these inflammatory landmines and providing anti-inflammatory support that's very potent and specific. Um, now you've done something. Now people get their lives back. So I do hope that helps. And... Um, I've said it before, but I myself have three known autoimmune reactions in my own body, and my sister had type 1 diabetes, and um, she has now passed away. Um, so it is in my family. I've got a cousin with MS. Um, it lurks. I only know about mine because I tested myself. Right? I don't present as a disease person. I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that bad enough yet. Nothing has failed on me. I just had the resources and the interest and a little bit of money to look. And there it was. I found it. Three different ones that I know of so far. And it could be more next year. I don't know. But um, I'm doing everything that I can do to help that not happen. I want to live to be old and climb mountains, right? And ride bikes and lift weights and all that stuff, right? And be happy and healthy for my grandkids. That's my goal. Uh, I hope that's yours too. So in closing, thank you so much um, for your attention on this topic. It's a big, big topic. And like my heart series where I talk about more of the woo-woo stuff and, you know, like the blood sugar kind of mini series, the autoimmunity is a mini series as well. We will return to it. And I will talk about individual autoimmune diseases as well. We have to get the basics, everybody. So if you're following along with me, I appreciate you. And I do hope this is um, giving you some value. Thank you so much. My name is Dr. Jim Chaltis, and this is A Functional Approach. Bye-bye.